Let me ask you a question. Does a person's eschatology matter? Can you determine if someone is truly saved based on their opinions of how the end is going to go? Did you know that John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except for the book of Revelation? Did you know that? Welcome back to the Reformed Rant. My name is Ed Dingus, and I ran about some of the most important theological, philosophical, and social issues of the day. Today, I'm responding to an article over at American Vision written by Gary DeMar. It is a critique, not of my critique of James White's critique of John MacArthur's critique of postmillennialism, but instead, it is... Uh, actually a critique of my description of that that critique. That's right. I'm responding to a criticism of what is essentially my prologue or my just my description of my rant uh, of the episode that I did on James White. And Gary DeMar takes an exception to my use of a little bit of mm, hyperbole. Um... I guess there's just not enough controversy going on, so we're getting a bit desperate, folks. So, here we go. I think this is going, this is actually going to be one of my uh, briefest rants that I've done to date, and I'm not brief. get to it. Now, I want I want people to understand what I'm doing here. Um, I made a criticism of James White's criticism of John MacArthur. I'm a huge MacArthur fan, uh, but I don't agree with John MacArthur on everything. Same, same way I don't agree with James White on everything. I'm not a rapture guy. I'm not a dispensationalist. I'm not a, uh, uh, a, a, a pre-trib anything. I probably stand in the camp of being a uh, historic pre-mill guy <clears throat> um, more than, than anywhere else. Uh, I waffle between being a pessimistic on-mill and being a historic pre-mill, and I don't make a big deal out of it. I don't make a big deal out of the, diff eschatolog the different varying eschatological schemes. I don't even make a big deal out of people who claim there's going to be a rapture. I just don't make a big deal out of it because I don't think it is a big deal as long as you're living the principles from Scripture. The problem is when your eschatological scheme begins to affect the way you interpret the rest of Scripture, now we've, we've got a real issue on our hands when that starts to happen. And that's my concern more than anything else. Um, 
so long as your your post mill views don't start to bring in some of these other ideas that post millennialism has historically done, then I don't have an issue with you. And I, I, it's one of the reasons I rarely talk about uh, eschatology on the rant. It's you know. Uh, other than to recognize full preterism as full-on heresy, I really um, don't think we have enough clarity around these issues to take a dogmatic stand and create division in the body of Christ over our eschatological schemes. And there's no division here between me and James White on this issue. My issue, my biggest issue with James White was with the sloppiness in the reasoning that I, I saw taking place and the criticism of uh, John MacArthur. I mean, here's a guy who's, who's over there on the left coast in the middle of radical liberalism and in the middle of this environment. And this guy, with his visibility and influence, is taking a stand that almost no one else to a man will take. And we have to nitpick some off-the-cuff remarks that he made about post-millennialism. And I, it, it's, it gets tiring after a while. And the real point here, the real, the real value that I hope to add here is to help you be a better thinker, a better reasoner, a better arguer, to think more clearly and soberly about these these things. All right, so let's get to, to Gary DeMar. I've, I've had uh, exchanges with DeMar in the past, and so here we go again. Apparently, uh, I, and this is not a critique of DeMar's article. I could care less. I did give the article a, dis, a discursive uh, review, um, and he, he repeatedly talks about the rapture, and I think that he might think that because I'm defending MacArthur and criticizing James White, that I might be a rapture guy. Um, I'm not. So he's way off base uh, on, uh, on that front. Now, um, all of that being said, uh, what does DeMar... Uh, actually attack? What does he focus his attention on? But my use of the days of Noah, where I made the comment that all post-meal guys uh, ignore Jesus' comparison of the days of Noah with his return. Um, all is a harsh word. All is um, me... Uh, employing a literary technique to emphasize uh, something that I see in post-millennialism. Uh, all people ignore it. Well, what does ignore mean? Does it mean that post-mill guys uh, don't deal with it, that they don't come up with an interpretation of what Jesus meant, that they don't talk about it? I don't, yeah, well, no, it doesn't mean that. I don't mean that when I say, Ignore uh, people who um, people who let's say reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, may treat the resurrection in their writings uh, 
and talk about it. And so I might say um, these liberals all ignore the resurrection of Jesus Christ talked about in Scripture. That doesn't mean they don't talk about it. It means they dismiss it. It means that they reject the physical resurrection of Christ, the historic Christian uh, Orthodox view and understanding of that event. Uh, so take it for what it's worth. I'm not going to spend uh, any more time on that until the end, and I'm going to come back and make one, one point about the days of Noah, uh, which I don't use to, as I said before, I do not spend time uh, fretting about eschatological schemes. Uh, other than talking about the imminent coming of Christ, the sure return of Christ physically to the earth uh, to catch away his saints, to uh, establish his kingdom, to punish evildoers and all those who have raised their fist against God. All right, let's get on with it. All right, it strikes me as odd that a postmodern guy like Gary Damar would insist on such a literal interpretation of my description of that rant when anybody who knows anything about postmillennial theology knows that it employs anything but a strictly literal approach to the vast majority of scripture that it treats. Even in this very article, Gary Damar it says that Acts 20 or Matthew 24, 30, 27 through 31 has been fulfilled. He's obviously not taking Jesus's words in a literal sense in that text. Um, he also says, believes that he, the reason he holds this view is that he claims that one of the apostles would still be alive when Matthew 24, 27 through 31 would be fulfilled. Yet he insists on taking my statement, all post-millennial guys ignore, Moa, ignore the days of Noah, uh, to mean that they just don't treat it at all, which is not what I meant. And I will own uh, the lack of clarity. After all, it wasn't an article. It wasn't an argument. It was a description of an episode designed to grab people's attention and get them to listen to what I had <laughs> to say. Okay, yeah, so there's there's that. It's interesting to me, too, as well, that Gary DeMar has this position that Matthew 24, 27 through 31 is not literal, but for some reason, Acts 1, verses 9 through 11, which talks about the very same event, is literal. What are the rules? What are the... What are the hermeneutical rules. What kind of exegetical process is DeMar using by which he can arrive at Matthew 24 as being not literal, but Acts 1, 9-11 is literal? I would love to see that. I would love to read about that criteria, those rules. Nothing else but just those rules. I want to understand how this works. Now, <clears throat> we'll say this. I'm pretty sure that a good number, if not most post-millennial guys, would agree with Keith Matheson's, Matheson's 
post-millennial position on the millennium. Not all, not all. So, I mean, please don't understand me as saying all. A good number, if not most. And that belief is that the millennium of Revelation chapter 20 is the present age between Christ's first and second advents. Christ has already come spiritually, A.D. 70, during which time Satan is bound and the church is sharing the victorious reign of Christ. Matheson claims that this is the first resurrection, that the first resurrection is when Christ was raised from the dead. So if you wanted to date Matheson's millennium, gosh, I don't know. Um, Would you date it at the resurrection of Christ when he ascended? Or would you say the millennium began in AD 70? Don't know. That's a good question, I think. Now, Revelation chapter 20, just so you are aware, says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of their fore, uh, the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now, I understand that when it comes to uh, eschatology, when it comes to apocalyptic literature, prophecy, uh, symbolism, that there is a great deal of ambiguity uh, in this, in this, in these genres. Understand that. It's a fact. However, when John says this is the first resurrection, that is unambiguous. All right. Revelation 19, 11 through 21 describes what seems to be the second coming of Christ. The final battle ensues. The beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Satan is supposedly bound now, today, this moment. So these are things that are going on here in the flow of events that I feel are extremely problematic for not just post-millennialism, but they're also uncomfortable for uh, the amillennial position um, because they, they create some serious challenges in uh, to, to interpret. I mean, there when you look at them, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to, to grapple with. It's why John Calvin didn't write a commentary on the book of Revelation. Um, 
this is not easy stuff. And so the, the emphasis here is not that we shouldn't grapple with them, not that, not that we shouldn't form opinions and try to understand what's being said. Uh, God gave us the word for a reason. He wants us to understand it to, as, to the best of our abilities. Um, but uh, we shouldn't divide over these things. We shouldn't get so heated about these things that we, we come to blows over them. Uh, it, it, uh, that, that is not uh, a Christian approach to, trying in, in, uh, to understanding uh, a text that is very complex. All right, so I, I have shared my principle for, for dogmatism, uh, and uh, I'll share it again. Uh, the level, my, my level of dogmatism uh, corresponds to the level of clarity coming from Scripture. If something is clear, then I'm pretty dogmatic about it. So I might not be dogmatic about all the details of what's going on in Revelation 20, but when John says this is the first resurrection, I am, I am dogmatic about that. This is the first resurrection. So the question is, what is this, right? What is this? Well, <clears throat> let's, just, let's just point out a few facts. And this is not a critique of postmillennialism. This is just me pointing out a few facts that I think are troubling for the postmillennial scheme. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verse 4 says that Satan is binding the eyes of the unregenerate so that they can't see the gospel and repent, basically. First Peter 5, 8 says the devil walks around. He is walking around, seeking whom he may devour. James 4, 7 tells us to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Ephesians 4, 27 demands that we not give the devil an opportunity. Ephesians 6, 11 tells us that we are able, that we are to stand firm against the schemes of of the devil. And then even here in, in the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, says that the devil is going to cast some of you into prison. Mm. How can Satan be bound and also at the same time engaging in blinding, deceiving, devouring, tempting, taking advantage, scheming, and casting saints into prison? How is that possible? What does that binding mean? Anything? <laughs> what, what is different uh, between what we read about Satan's activities prior to this binding, according to the post-mill scheme, and after? I don't see a lot of difference. The descriptions I see around Satan's activities in Scripture prior to the resurrection of Christ, prior to even AD 70, seem to be very similar to what we see going on in the world today. And, and according to James and Paul and Peter and John, the devil was very active during this period, which seems to contradict the idea that he's bound. Now, also notice another event happening in Revelation chapter 20. After being born again, after dying in Christ, being martyred. This group of people that John says he's looking at were raised from the dead. They came to life again. And then they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And I say that because 
many in the post-millennial, many who hold to the post-millennial scheme will claim that this event is actually talking about really being born again, that, the, that the, this is not the end. This is what happens at the enactment of the new covenant and the Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh and God calling the elect to himself. This is regeneration, right? They came alive. Well, that won't work because these people were already following Christ and they had been martyred for their faith and then they came alive. The order's wrong, guys. You come alive first and then you follow Christ and get martyred for him. So this interpretation won't work. Now, I don't know how. Uh, uh, I'm sure there are some post-mill guys who have honestly tried to, to treat this. Uh, I don't know how you get around it. I don't know what you do with it. This is the first resurrection, John says. This is the first resurrection, not the resurrection of Christ. There is no mention in Revelation 19.20 of a resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now notice, from this particular state of affairs, we move into after the thousand years are finished, after the millennial reign, the devil is loosed. After the devil is loose, he goes out to deceive the nations. After he goes out to deceive the nations, they come up against Jerusalem. And fire comes down from God and destroys them. There is no mention of Christ returning in Revelation 20. No mention. Where's the coming of Christ? Because the postmillennial scheme places the return of Christ after Satan is loosed. Not before. But if you read Revelation 19.20, it seems to place the return of Christ prior. All that we see happening after Satan is loosed and the nations come up against the holy city is fire coming down from God and consuming them. No mention of a return of Christ. Now you can try to make that fire coming down from God to consume them the return of Christ if you want to, and I'm sure many post-millennial folks do. I don't think that dog hunts for a second. Go ahead if that's what you want to do. Um, you want to talk about eisegesis? Wow. Keith Matheson tells us that the first resurrection was when Jesus rose from the dead. John tells us that the first resurrection is the resurrection at the end of the age after Christ returns. That is the resurrection. That's the resurrection talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the resurrection that is alluded to all throughout the New Testament. There is absolutely no mention of Christ being raised from the dead in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 5 even though that's what Matheson says is going on. What rule is Matheson applying to this text to arrive at this interpretation? Seems like Damar and Matheson do have some things in common. The Greek word for resurrection, this is significant, I think, is never once employed by any New Testament writer in a spiritual sense to refer to regeneration. Not one time.
James White has now been under the influence of one Jeff Durbin for a while, and it seems that that influence is moving White theologically. Who would have thought that Gary DeMar would be coming to James White's defense? But here we are. We know that Jeff Durbin either is or was at one time a theonomist. I have no idea where, where Durbin stands on theonomy today. If he's given up that view, if he's repented of that view, I do not know. I don't follow Jeff Durbin. I don't have anything against Jeff Durbin, personally. Um, I hear good things. I hear great things about him. So this is not an attack on Jeff Durbin. This is merely an observation. You can be sure that theonomy is very much at home within a post-mill theological framework. Now, my view, my position on theonomy is that it is heresy. That's why, And this is not a critique of theonomy. It's not even a critique of post-millennialism. It's a response to Gary DeMar. And it's a point I want to make regarding the link between post-millennial the post-millennial theological or eschatological scheme and other views that come in that are far more dangerous than just the post-millennial eschatological scheme. And I'm not saying that there's a, there's a, a logical necessity involved in graduating to these other views. That's not my argument. Hear that clearly. All right. Theonomy isn't the only disconcerting theological position that is comfortable within a post-mill framework. We also have this thing called Reconstructionism. It's extremely comfortable within a post-mill framework. Now, a Christian Reconstructionist is one who applies faith to every area of life, not just their life. In other words, the Christian faith should inform publicly, in society, the arts, education, law, policies, government, every area of human life. Sounds, something sounds right about that, but something is very wrong with that. And this is not a critique or a review of, of Reconstruction theology. It's a dangerous system. A reconstructionist is essentially a theonomist. God's law should be imposed in every area of life without exception. Now go Google uh, the debate with uh, Joel McDermott and J.D. Hall, where J.D. Hall absolutely just cleans Joel's clock in that debate. It was lopsided and embarrassing, but listen to Hall's points on theonomy. He does a brilliant job just mopping the floor with Joel. Go listen to that debate. That'll be that'll inform you more than anything I can say about the theonomy and why it's dangerous, why it's wrong. James White, as as uh, if you paid attention, uh, actually mentioned a man by the name of Rush Dooney on his show. 
if you paid close attention. It just so happens that Rush Dooney is credited with being the founder of Reconstructionism. So you see James White being moved to post-millennial views. James White saying positive things about Reconstruction, about Rush Dooney, who is the father, founder of Reconstructionism, a dangerous view, a theonomous view. Now, another view, another uh, theological branch that is very comfortable with postmillennialism is what we call dominionism. Dominion theology believes that God desires that Christians will rise in power through social and political as well as economic structures to eventually Christianize all the systems. We're going to take over, baby. We're going to rally the votes. We're going to put our guys in office all across the country. And then we're going to move from here to the globe. And we are going to Christianize the entire earth take dominion over everything, reconstruct everything so that God's law rules everything. This will be, this is the millennium, and then Christ returns. This is dominionism. It's a dangerous idea. But this idea is perfectly consistent with reconstruction theology and theonomy, and it's very, it fits very neatly within the post-mill eschatological scheme. Now, I'll say one more thing. We're all talking about this woke social justice movement, the woke cult that I call it, uh, and what's going on. That, those principles of social, the social justice movement are also not logically necessary for a post-meal view, but they are very consistent with a post-meal framework, within a post-meal framework. Very consistent. We're going to change everything, and this is how we're going to do it. So Gary DeMar has said nothing new in his article, um, directed not at my criticism of James, James White, but at the description of my episode. Now, a word about the days of Noah. All right, This isn't a proof text for me, but let me say this. If the two examples we have of the state of affairs of humanity just before judgment are both the generation of Noah and the city of Sodom. Those are the two examples. Shouldn't we expect to find similar normal routines between them and the big event of final judgment to come? Right? Their, what, were, what was their normal? Right? They're going on about their business, but what was that normal going on about their business? What did that look like? Is it so outrageous to think that Jesus not only had in mind normal eating, drinking, and sleeping, but the normal attitudes of rebellion, of extreme wickedness that went with it? It wasn't just a eating, drinking, sleeping kind of thing that we do that you see in Sodom and that you see in the days of Noah. Their eating, drinking, and sleeping was completely and totally contaminated with decadence. Now, what is the motivation to carve out the moral depravity of these two events, these two states of affairs, and pretend that the last days won't necessarily be defined by the very same kind of moral decadence that we saw in Noah and that we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah? What's the motivation to try and make that separation? 
Those of us who aren't inclined to hold a post-mill position are very comfortable saying, yeah, I mean, it's a, when you look at the days of Noah and they're going about their business, they were going about their incredibly immoral, decadent business. And we're very comfortable just t taking the whole ball of wax and saying in the end times, that's what it's going to look like. After all, in Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said that because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will wax cold. It seems like Jesus thought that things were going to deteriorate at the end. All right, there's a corresponding relationship between the proximity of the end of judgment and the increase in moral depravity. Seems to be. Paul speaks of this downward spiral in 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 3. Jude also talks about it. It seems perfectly reasonable to understand Jesus' reference to both Sodom and the days of Noah as a reference that includes the moral temperature of the time. After all, the pattern of moral decline immediately preceding judgment, divine judgment, seems to scream at us all throughout Scripture as a warning. And I'm not willing to ignore it, even if uh, some post-mill folks are. All right. That's, that's my response to... to uh, Gary DeMar's criticism. It's my response to what's going on with, with James White. I, I witness inconsistency, inconsistency in James with his Michael Brown relationship and his he wants to condemn charismaticism and Michael Brown is like a celebrity of the charismatics. I can't get my head around that, have never been able to. And now we see James with the influence of his new friends uh, potentially uh, flirting around with post-millennialism, talking about guys like Rush Dooney, um, and these people are over there in that camp, and this is my concern. Again, I'm going to say it one more time. I am not saying that it is logically necessary to move to these views. I am saying that all these, these branches, these theological branches that uh, range from serious error Reconstructionism uh, and its theonomy, which I hold to be heresy, dominionism. Um, these things are very comfortable in that scheme. And when you look at Revelation 19 and 20, and you look at the events, and you look at Matthew 24, and you look at the entire New Testament, and you start to ask questions, the, 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 the question that really comes to mind is how much gyrating do you have to do uh, to hang on to your view when people start raising objections to this idea that Satan is bound and, and that this is the first resurrection, that Jesus' resurrection was the first resurrection. And um, I mean, it, 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 there's an, and this is, I haven't offered a thorough critique of postmillennialism, and I have no intentions of doing that uh, because uh, at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot of ambiguity here. And at the end of the day, uh, the post-millennial view could end up being the right view. I'm convinced that Reconstructionism, Theonomy, Dominionism are not the right views. But if you are a reserved post-millennialist who may think that the way this is going to happen is through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel that's just going to convert the world, 
um, and that's going to happen, and 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 we're going to reach a different state, and Christ is going to return. Well, that's a different that's a different story. I mean, when I look at the evidence, I would kind of say, uh, <laughs> well, uh, empirically speaking, I have no reason to to believe that. And so, you know, some people will will try to say, well, you know, exegetically, you have to. It's the exegesis that drives this. But look. The charismatics try to do that with with uh, continuationism, and so there are some things that you can claim from Scripture that uh, exegesis solves. There are other things that you might claim Scripture teaches that uh, an empirical investigation would discover is absolutely not true. Which means that you need to go back to the table and entertain uh, alternative positions and re-examine your exegetical process. Right, and this is not suggesting that science uh, sits over scripture. Not at all, not at all. But I'll give you an example. These charismatics run around, running around, saying that God is working all these miracles uh, because the Bible teaches that the gifts have not those those gifts have have continued. Well, if it's true then this is an empirical claim, right? It's an empirical claim to say that the world's getting better, to say that the gospel is, is, is doing its work. That's an empirical claim. And when you look at the evidence, there is no evidence to support that. In fact, all the evidence that we have in front of us contradicts it. You look at postmillennialism and you recognize this view uh, really uh, came on the scene as an as an influence of of the Enlightenment, uh, it's a latecomer, and you also recognize that the postmillennial position continues to change and evolve, not based on advances in the exegesis of Scripture, but based on the events that's going on in the world. For example. Uh, you had this optimism that things were getting better and that you know post, the post-millennial view was actually correct until world, the world wars hit. And all of a sudden, people were jolted into their senses and thought, wow, something's not right. So there were changes in the scheme because of what was going on in the world. For me, guys, that's a problem, Okay. But again, let me say this. Uh, I have tons of post-mill brothers and sisters that I love, that I appreciate, that are solid folks. Uh, they do not embrace Reconstructionism. They reject theonomy. They reject dominionism. Um, and so uh, we're not, we're not going to divide over, that, over this issue. It's not an issue to divide over. These other branches that begin to spring up on the soil of post-millennialism, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to hang out much with a Reconstructionist, a Theonomist, or a Dominionist. I think that these people are getting into areas that are extremely disturbing. And it's, it's really disappointing and, and concerning for me that James White would seem to be, if not leaning in this direction, looking in this direction, positively mentioning Rush Dooney. And Rush Dooney had some good, made some good contributions. Reconstructionism isn't one of them. So if you're going to talk about Rush Dooney, you should probably qualify it. Same thing with somebody like a Bonhoeffer. It's, it's no different, you know, or a Bart. These guys uh, made some decent contributions that help us in our thinking. Um, N.T. Wright in his early days. Uh, I'm not going to throw his books away because he's defected from, from essentially defected from the faith. 
but I'm also not going to make glowing remarks about him that are that come without any kind of qualification whatsoever. All right, I'm going to stop right there because I said this was going to be my briefest rant, and I'm trying to I'm trying to honor that. Thank you for listening. I hope I have said something that kind of gets the juices flowing, gets you to think uh, about these issues, and I hope I've answered the Damar uh, critique, which I kind of think was kind of was really kind of kind of silly to go after a uh, description of um, a podcast rather than actually go in and interact with the podcast itself. And he made some assumptions that were just not true. So, um, yeah, um, if you have any comments, remarks, and you're listening to this in the app, you can leave those comments or remarks right there in the app. Go over to uh, uh, the Reformed Reasons podcast, Reformation Charlotte, Facebook pages. Uh, you can uh, interact over there. You can also go to my website, reformedreasons.com, leave comments there. All right. God bless. Keep the faith, stay in the fight, uh, and continue to uh, honor Christ. Remember, no, no soldier worth his salt entangles himself in the affairs of this life. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. at his voice, trembles at his voice, how crazy.